Welcome, welcome, welcome to Wisdom Exchange TV and podcast, where we interview women leaders internationally who have a social impact in their communities and beyond. I'm Suzanne F. Stevens, Conscious Leadership Cultivator and Social Contribution Amplifier. I'm also the founder of You, Me, We Social Impact Group. And your host today. So in each episode, we'll provide actionable conscious contribution insights to create a social impact to empower you, your organization, and most importantly, the community. Lots of learning and inspiration all to make your contribution count. We are live today on Facebook and Aramid and YouTube and maybe LinkedIn, not sure, but Technology, gotta love it. Welcome to those of you who are joining us live. To watch the recording and for future engagement, post questions on our guest's exclusive page on wisdomexchangetv.com. And you'll also find over a hundred interviews with women internationally leading social impact. So here we are and welcome to our guest this week, Chetty Sa, CEO and co-founder of Got Care. Jenny is an experienced designer, technologist, and serial entrepreneur, a woman after my own heart. She's played a leadership role at multiple design consultancies for over a decade before deciding to focus on one big, hairy challenge. And boy, it is in the healthcare business, creating a more equitable healthcare system through decolonization. Coming you to you from Toronto, Canada, my own my old, old hometown, actually. Welcome, Chenny. It's great to have you here with us today. Thanks, Suzanne. Great to be here, too. And so let's just dive right in. What was the catalyst for you to start Got Care? Yeah, so really um, a little unconventional startup story. So one of my last few days as a consultant, one of my last projects, I worked on a innovation initiative um, that was a part of a consortium of three of Canada's largest home health companies. And they wanted to build an alternative revenue model that was less government focused. And so we started this year plus R&D journey, um, all to discover that the weight of status quo within these organizations were just too heavy for anything to truly sustainably exist. So we basically gracefully fired ourselves. <laughs> um, but at that point, we, we and the, by we, I mean my, me and my co-founders, um, that's how we met. Um, and at that point, you know, we as consultants decided, wow, what are we doing here? This is, this is not good for anyone. Um, so we gracefully fired ourselves and got permission to continue doing the thing. And actually, some of the executives that we were working with at the time became some of our angel investors. So it all worked out. Fabulous. Now, the beneficiaries of your services are elderly and people with disabilities, correct? Yeah, so we service a wide breadth of people. So we support people who are elderly, um, people who have long-term disabilities, um, and also we support children with uh, special needs as well. Um, so it's really a mixed bag. Um, we also support people who are recovering from accidents or in some cases surgery as well. Um, so it's really about anyone who has a longer term home care need. So is there any connection to those beneficiaries or did you see it as a business opportunity or a gap in society that just needed filling? Yeah. So first of all, home care has been done the same way for, gosh, probably 100 years, <laughs> largely as a delivery 
and from a delivery standpoint, it has largely stayed the same. There's been innovation in terms of software for operations, uh, but in terms of how care is delivered, it's been the same. And so that's what we wanted to disrupt and transform. If you kind of you know look under the rocks in terms of you know what's going on with home care and why some of the inequities exist that were particularly highlighted through COVID. Um, as an example, you have people who were uh, waiting for care for multiple days, um, who had dependencies for things like toileting. Um, you've also had home care workers who were uh, living in shelters because they couldn't financially um, put, sustainably put food on the table. And so really, you know, home care overall has been due for a little bit of an overhaul. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so what we quickly learned is that actually the core reason why home care is in the mess that it is now, in our opinion, is because home care workers don't make a living wage. You know, for your listeners, um, if you aren't familiar with home care, it looks like it looks like dressing, medication support, taking patients to and from their medical appointments. And typically people need home care because something bad happened, right? Like their dementia is getting a lot worse or they had a stroke or something like that. Taking care of folks like this is a minimum wage job at $17, $18 an hour, $19 an hour. It's just simply easier to work at places like a greeter at Walmart or a Starbucks drive through window. And so because of that, we, we have currently about 40% turn in, in, in terms of this, this um, really valuable frontline supply. And so one of the, the immediate things we wanted to change was we, we asked ourselves, you know, what would it look like if we redesigned home care so that the people on the front lines could actually make a living wage? The data shows, but it's also kind of common sense <laughs> that if you can stabilize the people who provide that care, the quality of care increases as well. It leads to increased consistency um, and it also attracts more workers into the sector. Um, so in terms of how that translates to the person receiving care, um, it means that, you know, as a result of offering a living wage, we've had over 15,000 home care workers registered to want to work with us. And it means that for the, the clients and patients that we work with, um, we're able to match them to care in their local community. And I know, Suzanne, I don't need to tell you how much community matters. You know, like a easy comparable would be, you know, let's say you're looking for childcare and your nanny lives 20 kilometers away. Like, how's that going to work? <laughs> home care is no different. Um, you really need to keep it within the community um, in order for it to be a good experience on both sides. Yeah, and it's such a powerful thing. And it makes so much sense. You know, it's interesting that even talking to organizations that have nothing to do with healthcare, but food services, for example, when they raised in, in many of the provinces, the minimum wage, they said, what we're getting is better service. Because it, to your point, it's drawing a higher caliber person that sees it as a career not just as a as a job. So in general, that seems to be uh, something that it does really get people to realize, hey, this is something I can do long term. So it begs the question, and I know you have the answer, is how are you able to pay them a living wage? How does your model allow for that to happen? We have introduced a through our technology, um, for example, we have a matching algorithm that matches um, families to, to care workers. And through our technology, we're able to reduce the cost of care delivery by about 30%. And so 
it's one of those things where, you know, you reduce that cost by 30%. You can choose to pocket that or you can choose to pay people a living wage. The other perspective that I think is important is that, well, with that churn in the industry comes a lot of administration. And so actually, if you can stabilize this workforce and have long-term relationships between the person receiving care and the care provider, it actually reduces your administrative overhead as well. One of those things where doing good well just works out. <laughs> um, but it, it comes from, I think where, where we get stuck is when we get into scarcity mindset, right? When we believe that there isn't enough on the table. And I feel that these last few years through God Care has taught me is that it's not that there isn't enough, it's that it's our resources are just poorly distributed. Yeah, I would agree with that. This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your guide to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Thanks for listening. Now back to our show. Obviously, you need to to get the benefits that you spoke about, particularly from the administrative side, because there's less turnover. You're retaining your staff longer. Would that be the case then? If you're if you're only making seventeen, eighteen, nineteen dollars an hour, and you know you're toileting people and showering people and using Hoyer lifts, like there are some people who will choose to do it anyway because it's their calling and they they feel that this is the work they're called to do but for the vast majority of others you know it's it's like oh well i'm doing this because i need to do something and so yeah if if you have someone who leaves it becomes this huge kind of tetris kind of thing where you're trying to figure out okay well how can i rejig all of the everything that's going on to change that and yeah, so we we don't do any of that because what we do instead is we empower the frontline worker. So as an example, one of the things that happens in home care is, is scheduling, right? And so scheduling is a whole role. <laughs> um, it's called care coordination. And what we're saying is that it's not that care coordination isn't necessary. It's that the aspect of scheduling can be done through technology. We don't need someone to do that scheduling. So as an example, what we do instead is our families can text message their frontline workers to coordinate the time. And we just have some fancy APIs um, that then can also say, okay, well then let's validate that time. And we use things like GPS and also geofencing to confirm that they were there where they say they were. So instead of trying to manage this like monster schedule, all we're doing instead is just managing the care. <laughs> so it's really just through interventions like this um, where again, we're saying, okay, well, how, how can we make it work? The living wage part is a given. So given that, what are some ways we can make that work? So you have a 107, I believe 105, 107 part-time employees. So part-time, how many hours a week would they work? Yeah, so it ranges um, everything from 10 hours a week to 30 hours a week. So And yet you run the entire business. There's seven of you that run the business, the technology, the manage the business then. What steps did you take to start the social initiative? We started with fancy spreadsheets. <laughs> I'm a firm believer in the agile practice, meaning just take it step by step and don't build everything at the same time. Um, so yeah, so we literally started the business by using pre-existing technology and some fancy 
Excel scripts, really, <laughs> um, to get to get to about five hundred thousand dollars a year. So that till that point, that's basically how we ran things. And then we started building our own pieces,、um, including our patentable algorithms and things like that as well. As we started to scale and grow,、um, and the nice thing about that is that at that point we could make decisions based on data versus assumptions. So, for example, in terms of our matching algorithm, it's based on over twenty thousand care appointments,、um, as opposed to our hunch as to what that looks like. Far as starting, did you do any community assessment prior to launching this initiative? Be it speak with healthcare workers、uh, as employees, and then of course the the client and customer themselves. Yeah. So, like I mentioned, we had a whole R and D. Um, process that we've gone through before, and yeah, and really in terms of V1 of Got Care, it was through、uh, stakeholder co-creation. So I'm not sure if you've heard of design co-creation before, but essentially what it is is you're running a series of workshops that you're designing, and they're based on insights from quant and qualitative data as well,、um, where you're asking folks to say, okay, well here are the here are the parts and here are the components, and what can we build together. By having all of the voices in the room, they start to build empathy with each other as a part of that process. What comes out of that isn't necessarily the thing that you end up building, but what comes out of it is it helps you reduce the gap between what people say and what people do, and so you can start to shape in terms of what that helpful idea looks like. Okay, which is great collaboration for sure. How do you connect and engage with your customers? How do you get them? How do you keep them? Yeah, so we're B to B, not B to C. So we actually work with case managers who manage a client or a patient caseload. We call ourselves like the janitors of of the healthcare system. When some, a case manager comes to us, it's typically because they have had a file that's been sitting on their desk for weeks and they can't find anyone else to fulfill it. So, as an example, just a couple months ago, it's one of my. My, my favorite doctor magic stories. We had a referral for a Indigenous woman, 16 years old. She lived on res. She had a spinal cord injury, like classic impossible to fulfill. Just, just classically difficult. Any provider would be like, "Oh my gosh, that's so much work to fulfill." And、um, so we received that referral at 9 a.m. And that very afternoon, our system was able to find someone who was also Indigenous, who lived five minutes away, and was already trained in spinal injury care. And for me, that's just what that magic looks like, <laughs> and and why folks end up coming to us. So even though initially they come to us because they have this impossible to fulfill file, over time, what they what the reason why people come to us is because we're actually able to deliver on incredibly personalized care. You know, things like language, cultural understanding, all of those things that are considered. Nice to has in the system. We consider them, you know, should has. That's absolutely brilliant. People need, want to connect with their own culture, and it makes them feel more trusted and more connected and understood. Particularly from the language standpoint, where you know you may not have that same sort of rapport with someone different than yourself. So that I see is such a huge offer that you bring to the table. And I didn't realize it was it is B to B rather than B to C. Yeah,、and、that's、um, quite interesting as well. And does that mean that you work work across Canada?、Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, primarily our operations is in Ontario at this moment. We are also currently active in BC, Alberta,、um, Nova Scotia. 
uh, and I believe Newfoundland recently as well. <laughs> so we're expanding quickly. You know, you're expanding quickly, but this sounds like an opportunity to become quite big in the sense of if you're paying that fair wage, you're not paying a lot on admin or because as we discussed, you're soliciting people that are connecting far as language goes, far as need goes. Big do you think you can become? Yeah. So our future in terms of what we're building is what we're calling care costs. And it's exactly what it sounds like. So our network right now is about 15,000 care workers. It's, grow- it's grow- growing um, very quickly. We anticipate by next summer, it's going to be about 30,000. And what we want to do is we want to offer case managers a way to connect families who don't have access to a funded care option. So let's say you know they don't have an insurance benefit as an example that they can leverage. Um, we want to be able to offer them a, a way to purchase care at cost. And for us, that means, you know, let's say you're paying that frontline care worker $25 an hour. So that means you pay $25 an hour plus a 5% transaction fee, which covers things like payment processing, liability and everything else. And that's it. So we're, you know, we're an incredibly impact driven organization. And, and we believe um, providing Canadians to start a uh, option to formally purchase care um, instead of going, you know, under the table or paying cash because they have no other options, but actually, you know, legally having an affordable option to care is something that we need, especially given the aging population crisis that we're already in. Yeah, sure. Now, when I introduced you, I used your words: a more equitable healthcare system. So I think we've got the understanding mm-hmm. of that through decolonization. Let's yeah. talk about that. Sure. A lot of our healthcare system is is um, prescription based, right? It's this is what's happening. You need this, and that works in some instances. Like for example, you know, you have a particular illness that requires a particular medication. Great, <laughs> but aging is not an illness. Having a disability is not an illness. So it doesn't really quite work in those instances. And we can't treat it as such. You know, quality of care for us is really as defined by the person receiving it. And so if you, let's say you are, um, you only speak Italian and you need someone to support you with bathing, um, if for you, the bare minimum means being able to converse with that person who who speaks that language, the only language you speak, and is the same gender as you, if that's what you believe is your, your, your minimum, then we honor that. We don't just send someone to do it because it needs to be done. And we work with a family to find, in some cases, in case there's like a delay, as an example, to finding that person, we work with the family to be able to figure out a solution um, in the meantime, until we can establish that care. For us, it's, it's, it's more of a quality defined by the person receiving it as opposed to this patronizing um you know this is what's best for you great thanks for that so what was the biggest misstep you made and how did you address it while you were setting up your business 
I think for us, a lot of it was assuming that someone else must have already figured out how to do this. <laughs> there were a lot of assumptions that we made. In healthcare, there's a lot of players. It's a very complex ecosystem, especially once you get into the funding side of things. It's incredibly complex. And and yeah, and what you slowly start to realize is that, oh my gosh, we're already far exceeded the capacity that this system is designed for. And so I think that the faster we, we it took us a little while to realize that. <laughs> so we were, we were really wrestling and trying to figure out, you know, how we can, how we can work with, um, you know, sort of some of the more, lack of a better word, legacy systems out there. And what we realized was that actually, no, we don't need it to be this complicated. We can deeply simplify the quicker we were able to, to make those decisions, um, the, the faster it saved us a lot of headache. <laughs> You know, being a social enterprise, what advice would you give someone who wants to pursue that path? For me, the reason why I like social enterprise ventures is it's a little bit of best of both worlds. It's important to be able to balance purpose and profit. And what that means for me is, you know, you need to make sure that you have a financial model behind your impact model um, that is sound and can scale <laughs> and can be self-sufficient and can you can use that profit to continue to grow the business. Doesn't mean to say that you need to provide a 20x return for your investors, which is the standard venture formula, but you can provide a very healthy and sustainable four to five times return for your investors. It also means that you need to be able to measure that impact at the same time. So having a really clear theory of change in terms of, you know, what are the key indicators that demonstrate that you are making that change. And also being really clear as to what that change even looks like. I think sometimes we get really broad with the change we wanna make. Like we're like, oh, we want to disrupt this space. <laughs> um, but actually getting very explicit about that change. And so for us, it's our, our core change is around paying care workers a living wage. Our secondary change mandate is around empowering people to be able to make their own decisions around care. So we were very explicit. And so how we measure that is we measure how much they're getting paid and how much that changes retention. And then we also measure things on the family side, like how much they self-report that they feel a stronger sense of ownership and control having as a result of using our service. So being really crystal clear about what it is that you want to change and how you're going to measure that, measure that change um, is going to help you differentiate. It's gotten to a point where now every single system is too complicated to focus on the whole thing, you know, at the very beginning. Um, so yeah, being very clear. <laughs> Excellent advice. You know, the theory of change, and I was going to ask you, so thanks for sharing some examples of what that looks like for people. So with that, what advice would you provide to ensure that whatever you contribute has a conscious impact on the beneficiary, meaning the intended impact, a positive impact, and doesn't hurt them, but actually helps them? Do you have any insight into that? Stories. It's just stories. Ask for stories all the time because it helps you in your business anyway. Helps you with, you know, iterating on your product, helps you with selling your product. I want to focus a little bit more on the sustainability part. You know, healthcare has been a central focus during the pandemic. And in particular, homes for the elderly has been a huge issue, especially in Ontario. How is your business structured to meet the needs for customers and the beneficiary to ensure they stay healthy during I don't want to say we're going to have another pandemic, but we're not out of this one right now. So what, what sort of structures do you have in place to make sure people feel safe? First and foremost, it's about ensuring that the 
everyone is on the same page. So if a family has a particular COVID protocol that they would like to, to have in the home above and beyond your standard protocols, like masks and um, hand hygiene and things like that. But let's say, for example, they want that person to also change their clothes at the door before they come in. Fine. Great. Let's make sure we find you someone who's comfortable with that. If they're not comfortable with that, it's not a good fit for you. And if you're not comfortable with someone who comes in and doesn't do that, then it's just going to create an increased stress for, for you as well as a family. So it's just getting really clear about what that comfort looks like and establishing really open communication throughout the process. So for example, we do things like, you know, screening at every single appointment before every single appointment and all of your generic safety protocols. But but what makes the, the biggest difference um, is when we're constantly in, in touch with each other about how we're protecting each other um, as well, really about having that clear pathway of communication. Um, and then also it's about reducing the number of people who are going through that home. So for example, if you're able to consistently have the same person going through the home, then you just have fewer contacts that you need to worry about overall. Um, and I think that goes back to again, the whole living wage piece around, you know, the, the more stability you can bring to the sector, just also the, the fewer people you'll need to go through in order to find um, a, a regular care worker. Yeah, makes complete sense. Now, what would you say would be sort of the three most important initiatives to make your social impact sustainable? I think for us, one is, are we able to sustainably grow without reliance on things like grants and external funding? Are we able to sustainably grow even at a conservative pace? That's fine. Because as long as, long as you have that, <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it's really empowering because then, then you, everything else is just expediting what you're doing. Um, and it's not to keep the lights on. And I think it's for us, that was a huge moment of transition where it changed how we showed up to, to meetings, whether it was with potential customers or with funders or what, whatever the relationship was. Feeling like you're really in the driver's seat of your own organization and, and having that, um, knowing that, you know, worst case scenario, you're going to be able to, to, sit, to scale at a slower pace, but still sustainably was a huge game changer for us. Um, so I feel like that that was a really important piece. And the second thing is just making sure you have a really diverse team. So for example, my two co-founders don't look like me. <laughs> um, they're actually in their, their mid to late 50s. Uh, one is deep experience and network in the insurance sector, which is one of our key funders of care. And then the other used to assess care in terms of assessing the, the quantum and, and the need for care for people. And so just having, and then of course me as the, the tech person here. And so having a really diverse team where you're all coming in with some level of expertise and knowledge of something that is complementary to each other has also been incredibly game-changing for us as well. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, when you're, especially if you're considering bringing on um, early days, right? When you're looking at your first investors to bring on, being very, very careful with who you choose, being sure that people are in it for the right reasons and that they fundamentally want to see the, the same change that you do, even over um, profit. 
Yeah, and I'm really glad you said that. It kind of leads to my my next thought of what are the two biggest challenges and hurdles that you've had to overcome and not knowing if that was the case, but I can see if the funder is not aligned with what you're trying to achieve can really pull away from your mission and all of a sudden you have no money. So what would be a couple challenges that hurdles to sustaining your social impact to had to overcome? Being really brave about what it is that we do. (laughs) I, okay. So eight months ago, I was very nervous about using words like living wage. Just very nervous about it because in my head, I'm like, what kind of capitalist wants to hear that word? Like, really? Is that a thing that people want to hear? So I, I, I instead, we use words like marketplace, like care marketplace, and just other words that people are more comfortable, familiar, <laughs> you know, whatever that elicits for them, right? Like it, and, and what that ended up doing was just, and meant that we were talking to the wrong people. <laughs> so so the the quicker we were able to just embrace who we are and use the language that we want to use and attract people that are like, oh my gosh, yes, that language resonates with me. Like words like decolonization, like just instead of being hiding um, through something that feels safer, just being really clear about what you, it is that you're doing is it saved so much time. So much time. <laughs> you know, I, I love that you're. I love that you're saying that for so many reasons because I have some creative language of my own that I use, like conscious contributions, for example. They're not usually paired together, but consciousness is such a. I've been mm-hmm. talking about it for the last five years, and it's such, so important. And you know, sometimes I go, "Oh, maybe I should stop using it." And I'm thinking, "No, they're finally catching on <laughs> to what that is: decolonization, fair wage." If we haven't figured that out in the last year those two words yeah you know it's it's like you're you're just ahead of the game and sometimes it feels like no one's going to catch up but people will catch up is there any other challenge that you felt that you've overcome that has made you even more sustainable yeah I think that especially as social entrepreneurs you know we have a lot of aspirations yes like aspirational people in general right like high index high on altruism and i think one of the challenges with that is that we unless we're careful we we also develop attachment and we get attached to a specific outcome happening a specific way because this thing is so important and this is going to change these people's lives and i really need to make it happen because i'm so you know indebted to these people and i promise them and da 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 right like it's we get really attached to what that looks like one of the things I've learned is to what, let go of attachment in terms of how it's going to happen and really just instead just aspire with intention. <laughs> um, because my attachment got in the way of peak performance. Like as an example, even in terms of how we dealt with COVID. You know, I had a right out of the get go when COVID happened, you know, we're like, oh, my God, this thing happened. You know, we were we started developing attachment to how we were going to overcome some of the hurdles and the the ideas we had just were not working. (laughs) 
So, so yeah, so we, you know, we're like, oh, we were so attached to that way of moving through where we were like, okay, no, wait, what's the intention? What are we here to do? And we instead just became really clear and transparent to people and said, hey, here's what we've tried. It's not working. Here's what our intention is. Let's figure it out as we go together. Here's all of our contact information, like get in touch at any given point. And we just figured it out as a community of people. And and it, it was more of like a, like a, the solution unveiled itself <laughs> over time versus happening the exact way that we had in, had in mind. Did through the pandemic, has your business had, how's it responded? Because so many small businesses have not fared well during the pandemic, but you're in a healthcare, which mm-hmm. could, so how, how did you fare? Initially, we saw a 30% drop. Um, in business. And that was just because a lot of folks were really nervous about it. They found alternative arrangements with their families. But then really, you know, family burnout kicked in. Like, you know, you've got people who are taking care of their own kids at home, and then also now their parents, and then also, you know, transitioning to working remotely, it was just a lot. So we were able to bounce back relatively quickly, which is incredible privilege to be in healthcare through this last year. I know a lot of companies did not make it through. Then four months, we were pretty much back to speed. And as a company, we've been generally growing quite quickly. We've basically been doubling um, in terms of our reach and our our impact um, as well, uh, doubling every year. Did you learn anything from that sort of loss of 30%? Would you do anything different? It's one of those things where in hindsight, there were hindsight, there were ways we could have done things better. But in the end, I'm actually really proud of how our team handled everything. And, you know, knock on wood, uh, we we didn't have to deal with any outbreaks, we didn't have to deal with anything like that. Uh, There were only a very small handful of times where we needed to even reach out uh, back to folks because of potential um, risks when it came to contact tracing. Um, but overall, you know, we've been we've been very lucky <laughs> um, through COVID. I, and I appreciate that. And I guess for from the audience perspective, I'm just thinking of from the learning side of things, like if there's uh, anything that you could share that you learned that you may do differently in the business so people can consider that when they're thinking of having a social impact. I mean, I think the only thing I would have changed is to like not freak out so much at the beginning. <laughs> Uh, I definitely caught myself in my own spin. <laughs> but yeah, like, oh, but also at the same time, I feel like it's totally normal. Like, but it, but it, it is totally like, normal. Right? Like, it was a pandemic. And I think yeah. it's also just, you know, whatever way you, whatever way you dealt with it, it, it was also a normal response. And even if it wasn't the most perfect way to deal with whatever happened, it was still fine. <laughs> Um, and I think that I think that especially as entrepreneurs, like we beat ourselves up a lot about the decisions that we've made. I'm still learning, still learning how to to just even appreciate myself as well. So those are really important things because you already referred to the flexibility that, you know, being flexible and, and you don't just going with it. And we do if we take anything. That's the thing I'm taking from this uh, pandemic is. I too, you know, an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur had to 
I wouldn't say completely pivot. I would say I added services that I was going to at some point in time, but now I had the time to do it. (laughs) And going first after we pulled out some hair and then, you know, and that's next time I'll go, okay, now, you know, if something happens like this again, knowing that we can, we can deal with it. And yes, we may have a financial hit for a bit. So it's, it's all good. Now you have several employees and as you mentioned, you know, many are part-time. How do you manage them remotely? Now I'm talking from a leadership perspective. How do you keep them engaged, their professionalism and make them excited about what they're doing? Cause that must be challenging too. And as, as you said earlier, that, some people follow, find it as a calling and some people find it as a job to do. How do you, especially with the people yeah. see it as a job to do, how do you keep them engaged in the process? So we are, we have always been a remote only company. Very lucky in that we didn't have to deal with any transition. Uh, one of the things that we, we screen for in our interview process is, are you able to work independently in a remote setting? Don't get me wrong, like we have an office and we meet for big things that we need to do. Or like, for example, if we need to do an internal workshop because we need to figure out some big decision, like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll meet for things like that. But for the most part, we screen for folks who, who do prefer to, to work in a remote context. It's also more in alignment with what we're here to do, which is make home care more affordable and pay people more. And so remote is one of those things that have cut a lot in terms of our operations costs. So so yeah, so our intention has always been to continue to do that. But I think it's 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 also being really clear about, you know, who remote is not for. And if it's not for them, it's okay. We don't need to force it. <laughs> and for the folks who do want to work remotely, then it's really about being clear about expectations. So as an example, one of the things that I really like to have with my product team from a development standpoint is I have a... Um, this thing called a Chenny user manual. <laughs> so it's basically like everything you need to know about working with Chenny. Here are my strengths. Here are my weaknesses. Here's how I like to be communicated to. Here's how I like to receive feedback. Here's the things I need help with as a person. Here's the, my growing pains right now, what things I'm currently working on. Um, and so that level of transparency that you, you know, you, you develop over time when working with one another, it's harder to get that from just Zoom meetings. Um, so you just have to really be extra transparent and extra vocal about your needs and expectations. But I think that that self-awareness is also something that just needs to be fostered as a part of your culture. I love what you're saying. All I could think about is that Chenny book. You know, if you're in the dating scene to people here, this is how to deal with me. (laughs) You can actually provide that. Oh, it's really funny you mentioned that because um, the user manual worked so well in my, and, and I only did it the first time because I had a conflict with someone on the team and I was, and we were not able to communicate properly. So I was like, Oh, I, I think I need to do something. Like, I think we need to approach this differently. And it actually ended up working so well that, um, my husband and I actually created a user manual for each other. And we even then learned things about each other. So it was great. <laughs> do you directly manage the, re- the remote workers or does somebody else on your team? So we have what we call, you know, our leads um, who, who do, who are that first layer of support. And then of course, our uh, management team are the, we're the folks who get escalated to. <laughs> do you know any insights 
to those individuals or what they do, though, to make sure that the employees feel valued uh, in your organization? Like, what are some of those strategies? So one of the things that we do with the families that we work with is we send regular communications to say, hey, just checking in, how's it going with, you know, your care worker. And any compliment that we ever receive, my first priority is making sure it ends up going back to that frontline worker so that they hear it. Because it's it's home care, like things happen. Like, for example, someone ends up going to the hospital um, and the care worker has to accompany them and things like that. And whenever something happens, we also not only thank them, but we generally show them our appreciation in some way. We'll send them a little gift card for something or, you know, just anything really to, to show that um, appreciation. And then the last thing that we do is we involve them from a product design standpoint. So, you know, we say, hey, we'd love your feedback. We'd love to interview you for these things that we're working on. We're doing some research. Would you like to participate? Involving them in what we're building as well helps them sort of see what, what they're doing is contributing to a greater, a, a bigger thing beyond their immediate tasks. Which is fabulous. Again, collaboration and, and having your voice heard is so important. So what sort of ripple effect do you feel that your organization is is making, you know, to those individuals, but beyond those individuals that are your customers, what impact do you think you're having? Yeah, so I think the biggest impact that we're having is we're giving the families, the the people who are receiving care, um, so clients or patients, whatever language resonates with you, we're giving those folks the permission to ask for what they need in other contexts. Because we ask them in our context. <laughs> and, you know, advocating for your own care is like something that is learned. It's not something that is natural. There's a whole, there's a whole playbook on it, really. Like, it's not, it's not a normal, like, we're not born advocates of our own care. For me, that's the thing that I'm most proud of from a, from a recipient of care standpoint is, is that permission for themselves and other contexts to say, well, that's great. And here's what I need. And this is why. Um, and let's brainstorm some ways to get that. And that language, I think, is something that is really empowering when someone has experienced it with us. Does your business provide you with meaning? Oh, yeah, 100%. How does it do that? Just because of my family's socioeconomic status growing up, I always, I always lacked community. It's just a general thing that I lacked. What I love the most is that is in the community building that we're doing through healthcare. For example, in, in urban centers, our families and care workers are matched within two kilometers. So they're really close to each other. Enabling that community, I feel like, is what is going to sustainably get us out of this mess, <laughs> um, is by going back to local, right? And using our systems to bring us back to local. Like, the way that we're delivering care really is we're just using technology to deliver care the way that it was done when families live together, as an example. <laughs> um, but we're just doing it through other means, right? For me, it's it's about enabling that community that I feel like I missed out on. But also it's in preparing a future where I feel like there's a sustainable option to care for my own aging parents. Um, because right now that sustainable option certainly does not exist. And the last thing I would say is that I, I feel like I, I, I think that social entrepreneurship is still something that's like, it's kind of like a, a mystical creature. 
like it's like people want to do it but they're not totally sure how and they're not totally sure how it's funded and and what that looks like and like what to even call yourself and all of those things and so for me the other part that I love about what we're doing is just even sharing with other entrepreneurs for example through communities like CEO where we can establish a stronger practice about what it means to also be a social entrepreneur yeah, absolutely. So we're going to wrap up shortly. I want to do a little bit of a quick fire questions. First thought, best thought, you know, don't overthink it. And uh, then we'll, we'll wrap up. So what is one thing you wish you knew prior to engaging down this path of got care? That you belong here. Best piece of advice you ever received to ask yourself what it is that you need to let go of in order to enable the thing that you want. Which of your strengths do you rely on most to have the success you've achieved? Inner calm. Besides your patients and beneficiaries, which do you think needs the most investment of time, research and money? Our care workers. Do you have any children? Do you mind me asking? Uh, I do not, but uh, we're currently in the process of, of applying to become foster parents. Oh, fabulous. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> so with that, because I'm putting you in a scenario, what advice would you give to a 10-year-old daughter if you had her today? Smooth is good. Smooth is better than fast. It's better than slow. Just go smooth. What advice do you wish you received? I wish I received less advice and I wish I received more questions. Oh, that gives me shivers. <laughs> I, I'm all over that. <laughs> what three values do you live by? Open-mindedness. Top leg top of the list. <laughs> Open-mindedness, fairness, and empathy. Fabulous. Thank you for that. Well, thank you all for joining us. You can subscribe to Wisdom Exchange TV so you receive each new interview notification in your inbox. Please share this interview by going to the share button located on the page. The interview is available in podcasts and video, so go for a walk and stick it in your ear and you can learn so much. And if you know someone who has a significant impact, social impact in business education, civic service, or advocacy, let us know. Visit the guest tab on wisdomexchangetv.com and submit their information. And our research team will take it from there. Now, if you want to live your most meaningful life, you can also join the UMiWe community, Women Driving Social Impact. Visit us at umiwe.ca to get access to diverse resources to guide you. And joining the community to connect, collaborate, make your contribution count. Thank you so much for your, your insight, your enthusiasm. I feel your passion for the care and, and also the technology to do it because it really is the vehicle that makes it affordable and provides for a living wage and consistency. But there was a lot of great insight you provided for people who just want to have a social impact in finding their destination. So thanks for that. So do you have any words of wisdom for your audience regarding how to make their contribution to society? Yeah, I think one of the things that I that really resonated with me 
because younger me was worried about how much impact I was making a lot, like worried a lot, a lot. And if you're worried about that, one of the things that was helpful for me was thinking of, of your impact as ripples, which means that there's impact you can track and impact you can't track. And instead of being obsessed about how much of an impact you're making, instead, just try focusing on showing up as your best self in as many interactions as you can throughout a day, because you have no idea what impact you're actually making. And there's beauty in that letting go of that control as well. Oh, so very well said. Thank you for that. And until next time, make your contribution count for you, me, we. This episode is sponsored by Make Your Contribution Count for You, Me, We, a book written by Suzanne F. Stevens. It's time to act. Let this book be your guide to having a sustainable social impact while living your most meaningful life. Thanks for listening. Watch, listen, or read interviews with conscious contribution leaders who are having a social impact on our communities and beyond. WisdomExchangeTV.com